Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Ultimed podcast. Andrew Dowling here, Mitch Kurtz, my co-host, is on the line as well. And we have a very, very special guest with us today. Um, some of you who have listened to our podcast would have heard us reference um, our guest's research on numerous occasions. Um, I will let him tell you all about his background and himself, but it is none other than Dr. Ethan Russo. Um, hope I'm saying that right, Ethan. Um, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. You, your name really has come up quite a few times when we've talked about the the entourage effect um, and you know your, your reputation in the field of, of cannabis research really does precede you. But Despite all of that, I am going to ask you to just give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and how you you came to, to be such a, a sort of a preeminent researcher. Okay, well, I, I'm a physician. Uh, I was in neurology practice for 20 years in Missoula, Montana. Uh, but along the way, um, after I got a seven-year itch, it wasn't in my marriage. It was uh, related to my practice <laughs> and the fact that um, I just felt I wasn't giving patients what they needed. I was giving increasingly toxic drugs to my patients with less and less benefit. Uh, so I began to think, how can we do things differently? And it pointed me back to uh, interest I'd had many years before in medicinal plants. Uh, I started out really interested in migraine headaches. Um, so I thought about where in the world are there the most uh, plant medicines that treat headaches. And like so many things, it turns out to be the Amazon jungle. Uh, so I took some Spanish classes at night and a uh, couple of years passed. I made my first trip to the Peruvian Amazon in 1994, very briefly. And then the next year, I actually took a, a sabbatical from work. The normal thing uh, at my clinic was you'd go and study at some university um, but I, I went to the University of the Amazon Rainforest uh, and worked with the Machiganga tribe in Parque Nacional del Manu um, in eastern Peru. Um, they had a tremendous number of uh, plant medicines, including for headache, on, as is common in South America, a lot of hallucinogens as well. On A lot of those overlapped, and this got back into a theory I'd had at the time that many psychoactive substances or psychedelic substances at higher doses treat headache at lower doses. Um, that's been a thread that's uh, gone on throughout my career. Anyway, when I got back, it was uh, about 1996 at that point. And Prop 215, Proposition 215, that allowed for medicinal use of cannabis was on the ballot in California. And then everything changed. That was the catalyst for liberalization of cannabis laws throughout the United States. And to a certain extent, um, it uh, had a domino effect in other countries as well. Um, at that point, um, I got drafted into uh, looking at uh, cannabis for migraine, which had a long history, going back at least a thousand years, and it was one of the most common uses of cannabis in the 19th century. So I went about trying to do this the right way, the, meaning that 
I wanted permission of the US federal government uh, to do a study of cannabis and migraine. Well, I really got stonewalled. Um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, who had authority over this area, really didn't want any therapeutic uses of cannabis. Uh, so they stonewalled me for a couple of years. Then the rules changed a little bit in 1999. Uh, and I was able to go directly to the US Food and Drug Administration. And they approved my, my study. Um, however, uh, NIDA, the same agency that had the monopoly on supply, wouldn't give it to me. Um, but along the way, I'd learned a lot. Um, and I started writing and publishing my first publication, which was on, on cannabis and migraine, uh, was noticed by Jeffrey Guy, the founder and chairman of GW Pharmaceuticals, that had a license from the British Home Office to develop pharmaceutical forms of, of cannabis. Uh, Jeffrey uh, got in touch and asked me to be on uh, an advisor to the company. And I held that position for five years before I came on full time in 2003. So I was senior medical advisor to GW um, for 11 years during the development of the pharmaceutical forms of cannabis that we have today, which are specifically Sativex, uh, approved in 30 countries for treatment of spasticity and multiple sclerosis, and Epidiolex, which is basically a cannabidiol isolate from cannabis uh, used for severe epilepsies. Um, along the way, um, I was very active in publishing and research and uh, liaison with uh, various uh, scientists around the world that were studying cannabis in the endocannabinoid system. Um, subsequently, after my departure in 2014, I've worked for private companies, culminating in the last two and a half years uh, with my own company, Credo Science, which is again devoted to development of cannabis-based medicines and um, other products and services related to the endocannabinoid system. So that's a long-winded thumbnail yeah. as thumbnails go. No, that that's great. I and you know, kind of picking up on it really does sound like 1996 was a real watershed moment, you know, in that whole trajectories, you know, some might characterize uh, Prop 215 as, as the gateway law, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly led to um, a flurry of, of research and, and development in this area. How, I mean, people who hear your name have you sort of associated with the entourage effect. Can you maybe just give us a, a the nuts and bolts of, of what that hypothesis is all about? Well, uh... People have falsely attributed this to me. Um, <laughs> in fact, like so many things, it was Professor Meshulam uh, in Israel uh, with his colleague, uh, Dr. Ben Shabbat. They described uh, the entourage effect in 1998. But then it was related to the endocannabinoid system. So they were looking how at how molecules related to anandamide, the best characterized endogenous cannabinoid, how when it combined with seemingly inactive related compounds, there was a boosting of effect. Um, and this applied to things like pain control and inflammation. 
Um, the next year, they published another paper and said, well, the same thing could apply to plants uh, because uh, they're uh, theoretically, you could have a better medicine from a plant than a single compound from it. But they said it was sort of theoretical. So that was 23 years ago. Um, this was a concept that I already felt was operative with respect to cannabis. Uh, so it was really antithetical to how standard pharmaceutical research is done, where you look at a receptor, you computer design something to fit there as tightly and with a, as high potency as possible, and that's your drug. Then years down the road, you worry about whether it has some associated toxicity. Um, to me, that's backwards. Here, yeah. we've got a situation where humans have used cannabis medicinally for thousands of years. Um, and there's a certain innate uh, safety factor here. Yes, people can overdose on cannabis, but properly employed, it's extremely safe and very therapeutic for a wide variety of conditions. Um, anyway, um, I took the concept of the entourage effect and really applied it to cannabis and showed how it would work. Initially, we first published um, on this uh, with my colleague, John McPartland in 2001. And then um, probably my most popular paper on this was in 2011 called Taming THC. Um, showing how uh, terpenoids and minor cannabinoids could combine with THC and uh, do a couple of things. Number one, boosting its therapeutic effect. And number two, reducing its side effect profile. Uh, so synergy um, can refer to either of those things. Um, the idea is, again, a botanical, um, a plant medicine, that um, really works better as a whole uh, than a single compound can. Uh, and this is a, a concept I've really applied therapeutically. When I came back from the rainforest, um, I wasn't just working on cannabis. I was incorporating uh, other medicinal plants, botanicals, herbs into my practice. Um, and in general, a lot of the stuff we use worked as well or better than the standard pharmaceuticals and with a lot less side effects. Um, so, and then I still subscribe to this uh, sort of uh, philosophy today. Um, you know, I uh, hear all too often from patients about, you know, we've tried five of these drugs and um, what else can we do? And often it is some natural compound. Uh, remember, humans existed uh, in the world for thousands of years before we had synthetic chemistry. Um, so, you know, there's always been medicine. The medicine has come from plants and primarily until 75 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I was uh, we were chatting with uh, some people on the podcast uh, about the idea of the entourage effect, and it was suggested that potentially it's the entourage effect could be a, a misleading term in that um, it's suggesting that you have to have, well, potentially suggesting that you have to have THC present in order to get a synergistic effect, as opposed to a synergy being the primary uh, goal or the primary 
idea here. So you could have no THC or no, you know, heralded like hero cannabinoid, and you could get benefits from just a combination of terpenoids, for example, rather than thinking about it as the entourage of a cannabinoid. I was just curious to get your thoughts on something like that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely valid. Um, You know, we have situations now where uh, asked to do formulations, uh, certain jurisdictions that can't be any THC. So we work with other cannabinoids, but, you know, that's really not a handicap. Um, the plant makes upwards of 150 closely related compounds called cannabinoids. THC is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Now, it is true. I'm fond of saying that there's nothing that cannabin- cannabidiol does that won't be enhanced by having at least a little bit of THC. I, I sure. believe that, but there's plenty, plenty, plenty the, that uh, cannabis-based medicines can do exclusive of THC and and still harnessing the entourage effect. Um, you know, so, you know, people like analogies, I think. So this is sort of the difference between a soloist and if they're really good, someone singing a cappella can be really great. Um, but if you have multiple instruments and harmony, it's often a richer experience. Uh, the same applies to medicine, particularly plant-based medicine. Is there a way that you use to that? I mean, that's a great analogy, but in the in terms of we come you know, up against a lot of GPs that that really just aren't quite convinced and they're used to the traditional single uh, compound medicine. And I'm just wondering what your, how do you kind of translate it for somebody who's just been prescribing for, you know, 30, 40 years and they're like, ah, you know, cannabis oh. and, and they might dabble, maybe, maybe you get them to dabble in maybe a CBD or if they're game THC, but then taking that next step to kind of minor cannabinoids, terpenes, getting their head around it? Uh, it's it's a steep learning curve. And mm. unfortunately, in the United States, medicine's deteriorated. I'm glad I'm not in practice because uh, generally uh, you've got 15 minutes to see, see the patient and explain everything. Uh, cannabis-based medicine doesn't work that way. Um, you need a solid hour or more to explain what's going on how this can help, the pros and cons, what to look out for. Um, so, yeah, it's labor intensive. Um, uh, you know, it's something I've dealt with throughout my career. Unfortunately, it's the case that whether it be a physician or a politician, unfortunately, they often won't get on board uh, with cannabis medicine until they or someone in their family has had cancer and needed cannabis to prevent them vomiting them, uh, you know, while they're trying to survive. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a sad fact, um, but we have a lot of these near deathbed conversions. Um, but I, I mean, I've heard the same story so many times from a doctor saying, gee, I didn't believe. And then Mrs. Jones, who we expected to be dead three months ago, came in looking great. Um, yeah, uh, it sometimes it needs to hit you in the face before you realize the potential here. Yeah, I've definitely seen we we've seen that uh, phenomenon a lot of once there's a, a personal connection or story with it, then you know suddenly there's a conversion. 
Um, I just, when you were talking before about, uh, I guess, the recency of, of synthetic chemistry, I'm just curious on your thoughts around, you know, because that that has obviously been rolled out and applied to to medical cannabis just as much as, as any other kind of medicine. So we have isolates of CBC, CBG, CBN, all, all of the minor cannabinoids. What are your thoughts around, um, you know, combining various isolates to, you know, I guess, try to create the entourage effect versus a whole plant extract of a plant that inherently contains those cannabinoids? Mm. All right. Well, I'm going to speak on both sides of the issue. (laughs) Um, In the ideal world, you would selectively breed cannabis to have exactly the profile that you want, you know, these specific (laughs) cannabinoids and those specific urbanoids but it takes time also it's sort of contrary to the idea of individualized medicine so um uh, there's precedent for the approach you mentioned um it's not commonly known to people that sativex um you know one of the two cannabis-based pharmaceuticals uh available Um, is a combination of extracts from two plants, one that was high in THC and one that was high in CBD. The same thing can apply to any number of components. And currently, uh, we're typically formulating with several uh, cannabinoids at once and several terpenoids at once. Now, again, ideally, those should all be sourced from cannabis. If they are, that preparation, whatever it is, could be developed as a pharmaceutical and would be considered what's called a unitary formulation, uh, like Sativex is. So the regulators, uh, whether it be uh, the US FDA or the European Medicines uh, Agency, have accepted this combination um, as one drug, okay? Um, And the reason they can do that is it comes from one species, cannabis sativa. Now, if on the other hand, you had an extract of cannabis and you wanted some linalool and you got it from lavender instead of cannabis, that would be considered a combination product. And you'd have to do toxicology and other tests on each extract separately and and together. So you suddenly tripled your cost there. Um, Yeah. As long as it comes from cannabis, these different combinations from different plants uh, is perfectly legitimate and maybe uh, a very rational approach to developing uh, preparations for specific conditions. And that, that's exactly what we're doing now in our formulation work. Yeah, interesting. Kind of, yeah, it, it almost, um, yeah, just when you take that unitary approach, that's almost fitting your design of the medicine in accordance with the system for approving or assessing that particular medicine. Um, Sure. Yeah. Uh, Another point, there's a lot of work being done on um, synthetically producing these natural compounds. And what they do is use genetic modification of yeast or sometimes E. coli bacteria. Um, So, you know, you can make THC or whatever else in a vat. Um, However, to date, the concentrations that they can get are very low. 
Um, I'm not sure how far they can go because some of these substances are going to be toxic to the cell at a certain concentration. Um, plus, they're really thinking in terms of isolates that will use the, the yeast to make one compound. Let's just say cannabichromine because that's hard to come by sometimes in the plant. Um, what I would maintain to you and everyone else uh, is that um, I do not see that any of these single compounds um, will, or even totally synthetic cannabinoids that a lot of companies are pursuing, that these are going to have any therapeutic advantage over what you can do with the plant. Um, and that's my bias. And I've taken a stance that I'm not interested in working on synthetics. Um, the science is fascinating. I'm not a Luddite. Um, but uh, what I want to do with what remains of my career um, is to try and optimize what the plant can do. Now, the beauty of cannabis is it's so adaptable. Uh, there's no reason to do genetic modification on it because you can teach the plant to make almost anything that you want. Um, so again, selective breeding through conventional techniques is the, the, that's the approach that I feel strongly should be taken here. Interesting. I wonder um, also in your research, uh, if you've come across, you know, something we hear about, but don't hear enough about, I don't think is, is flavonoids in, in this, in the entourage effect. Um, what's your, you know, what's your preliminary research shown or have you come across them? What's your experience? Okay. So first, what are flavonoids? Um, these are uh, compounds commonly found in uh, berries. Uh, they often give a nice uh, bright color to things. Um, uh, flavus is uh, Latin for yellow, um, but some of them are purple and some are red. Um, so like any plant, um, cannabis makes various flavonoids that are used in as defense compounds. Um, specifically in cannabis, I want to hone in on one group of compounds. There are three of these. They're called canflavins, and there's A, B, and C. They're very closely related. These, um, the other flavonoids in, in cannabis have been found in other plants, but these are unique to cannabis. They're not psychoactive, so nobody takes these to get high, but they're showing profound uh, anti-inflammatory properties. Um, the problem with virtually all the drugs on the market for treating inflammation, uh, particularly uh, steroids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories have a very bad side effect profile. Uh, they can cause ulcers, they can cause uh, the NSAIDs, can cause heart attacks or strokes. The canflavins uh, reduce inflammation through a couple of mechanisms that are independent of what's called COX inhibition. <clears throat> Excuse me. A COX is cyclooxygenase. Um, so inhibiting that enzyme has an anti-inflammatory effect, but it, it really exposes people to risks of gastrointestinal bleeding or um, cerebrovascular accidents, coronaries. 
Um, and, you know, there are a lot of hospital admissions and deaths related to those drugs. Um, canflavins don't seem to affect that system and so don't have this liability. Um, so this is a very promising area. And it's not just inflammation, like aches, pains, arthritis. Uh, seemingly, the flavonoids have a lot of activity against cancers as well. Uh, so very promising area. And in terms then of um, just jumping around a little bit, so we've done, we've done flavonoids. What do we notice are the, I guess, features of uh, the therapeutic features of, of terpenoids? What, what do we, what, what's been observed in terpenes that, that has a medicinal application? Sure. So again, definition, terpenoids are the aromatic components of plants, like from flowers or uh, citrus peels. Um, so a lot of, uh, there are 200 different terpenoids that have been found in cannabis, um, but so far none are unique to cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, what they do, again, this is something the plant uses to its advantage, either in disease prevention, uh, to ward off predators. Uh, some of these have bitter taste, and so uh, it's less likely uh, deer are going to forage it, um, this kind of thing. What they do therapeutically in humans is quite varied. Some of these have antibiotic effects. Uh, some of them have very pronounced anti-inflammatory effects. Some have effects on mood. Um, so uh, again, linalool, I've mentioned, um, that's a very powerful anti-anxiety agent without being addictive or particularly sedating. Uh, so that's quite different to pharmaceuticals for anxiety. Uh, limonene, um, common to citrus peels as well as occasionally to cannabis, uh, has a very pronounced uh, uh, antidepressant effect. Also, it's an immune booster. So you suddenly see how these different compounds, when you're able to mix and match, really enhance what a cannabis-based preparation can do. It's yeah. I mean, the, and, and when you're looking at, you know, certain strains that have rich terpene and, and flavonoid profiles, I, I guess, yeah, there's the, when we examine each of them in isolation, there's a tendency to sort of, you know, to consider it on that view. But then when you realize that they're all working together in, in a synergy, it kind of produces its own unique combination and then, of course, there's the unique biology of the person taking it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess this might be a good segue to jump actually into some of your your research topics of late. So, um, whereabouts is is your your research gotten to at the moment? What are some of the projects that that you have on foot? Well, uh, it's a lot of different areas. Um, we've talked uh, so far about therapeutic properties of cannabis. Um, we also have to take into account that, yeah, there can be problems with cannabis, particularly if uh, use is excessive. One of those situations is a rare but increasingly recognized condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So this is a weird situation. Certain people, but not everyone who uses large amounts of cannabis, particularly on a chronic basis, may develop uh, an illness in which they have severe nausea and vomiting with abdominal pain, often winding up in emergency 
Um, and uh, weird trait of it is um, people find relief from their symptoms temporarily by taking hot showers or baths. Um, often there's a big delay in diagnosis and people go through a lot of tests that don't show anything. And then if somebody knows to ask about their cannabis usage, um, uh, that is the culprit. Um, uh, the other weird thing is that uh, application of capsaicin ointment, capsaicin's the uh, active ingredient in hot chili peppers, when that's applied on the skin, that can provide temporary relief. But most drugs used to treat nausea don't work. Um, so the solution to this is to stop cannabis usage. Um, but to me, the real enduring mystery here was, um, I know lots of people that use lots of cannabis and have for years and have never had this problem. How are they different? from the folks that have CHS on figuring there must be a genetic susceptibility. So we looked into that. What we found was five statistically significant uh, mutations um, that were present in CHS patients uh, that were not present in people who had equal amounts of usage, but it did not have the symptoms. Um, and this helped explain it, um, the, the symptomatology. One of the genes had to do with how you metabolize THC, how the liver breaks it down. So if there's a problem there, it could build up. And a uh, funny thing about cannabinoids, they're subject to what's called a um, biphasic dose response curve, which is a fancy way of saying that, um, whereas it's common knowledge that THC at a low dose combats nausea, like in chemotherapy, at a very high dose, it can make anyone nauseated. Um, so that was one factor. We also found um, two genes affecting dopamine metabolism. Um, and this explains some of the behavior um, of CHS patients. Most of these people qualify as, as cannabis dependent, and often they have other addictions. And that relates to uh, dopamine problems, um, as well as other susceptibilities. Um, and um, another one was the, there was a mutation on the gene for TRPV1. TRPV1 is a receptor where the capsaicin uh, works. Um, so it's involved in pain responses, but also affects how the gut moves and nausea responses in the brain. So all of a sudden, we've got some real explanations for the pathophysiology, the disease process involved in CHS. Um, so uh, we're excited about that. There's now a genetic screening test that can tell people whether they have um, these genetic mutations that might make them susceptible to developing CHS if they're using too much THC. It may point us as well to treatment approaches, but the treatment right now should be abstinence from uh, from cannabis usage for people that have this problem. I was going to say, so the so CHS is is really um, a condition which it's well, it's it can be potentially you can screen someone to see if they have genetic traits that would would have um, make them susceptible to CHS. In which case, right you want that person to never go anywhere near THC 
at all. It's, uh, it's just going to induce vomiting. Ideally. Or, yeah. Or at least they've got to be very judicious in their usage rates. Right. Um, you know, again, it's a genetic susceptibility. It's not a guarantee that they're going to get it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the context in which is usually be used is someone that has the symptoms. And um, yeah, there are other implications, too. Another gene, um, uh, the ABCA1, um, unfortunately, it places people at risk for later development of uh, coronary artery disease and Alzheimer's disease. So like a lot of genetic tests, it tells you what can happen in the future. And it may have bearing on how you, your current lifestyle and trying to reduce risk. Um, so I, I think it's a very important thing to investigate. Is it affected by, is it just THC in high dosages or is it also affected by the ratio of THC to CBD that you might have, for yeah. example. I mean, one of the things we thought of is maybe if people just use CBD products, they could avoid this, but uh, it's not usually the case. Part of the problem is um, many CBD preparations also have some amount of THC in it. And once somebody develops a syndrome, it, uh, their ability to use THC in any amount is severely compromised. And the best thing is to just not do it. And that would include all cannabis, um, particularly if we can't guarantee that it's free of THC. Mm, it's interesting that it's it's CHS in a sense. It sounds more like it's almost THCHS in, in a well, sense. Uh, that'd be true. But the reason, you know, this was, um, I should point out, this syndrome was first reported in Australia in 2004, but one <laughs> had it. He laughs because of uh, things like Nimbin. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, but uh, one of the the blokes that had this had <laughs> for eight years. Um, so, you know, uh, we could say the index case was in 1996. Um, you know. But again, I'd emphasize this isn't a risk for everyone. Apparently, there's certain people that are just susceptible to it. Well, us Australians are also known for uh, pushing the envelope when it comes to the, <laughs> the max dosage recommended, I'd say. Yeah, well. I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you're alleging. That's the reason the Foster's cans are so big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. I'm just curious, are there any other non-phytocannabinoid chemicals that are found in cannabis that we should be considering or thinking about? Uh, yeah, we've got a million of them. <laughs> yeah. um, there's uh, something in the seed code, uh, cannabis and B, uh, also anti-inflammatory with a good profile, and a related uh, compound, caffeol-tyramine. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I'd like to do is, uh, when we've got this developed, some of these things are in low concentration. Um, you know, I can envision that we make a super anti-inflammatory from cannabis components in it. Uh, you know, just combining the different uh, anti-inflammatory compounds in cannabis. And you could do this totally without THC and have a dynamite preparation. Um, so I may be giving away some trade secrets here, but. Yeah. That's, that's what our podcast is for, actually. It's a great name, actually, to, uh, yeah, cannabis trade secrets. But um, <laughs> I, I, 
Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Mitch. I can see you champing. No, that's all right. I, I just, I know that there's a few different projects that you're working on beyond just uh, um, CHS and, and the obvious entourage effect, um, potentially in nutrition, potentially something you mentioned uh, before we jumped on around cryo-cafe. Just wondered if you could maybe give sure. some insights okay. into that. Well, you know, uh, if you're interested in the cannabinoids and terpenoids, we should point out that uh, the whole plant doesn't make these. They're really concentrated in what are called the capitate glandular trichomes. So these are like balls on top of a tea, and they're in greatest concentration in the unfertilized female flower, um, particularly the top buds. So, you know, if you're looking for the highest concentration of cannabinoids, that's where it's at. Um, and these are the things that you'd want, and you don't necessarily need all the other biomass from the plant. You can use that for other things, fiber, et cetera. Um, so uh, I wanted, additionally, I have, I have criticized uh, the field that often will um, collect cannabis flowers and then dry and cure them before they do any um, uh, isolation or extraction. What happens in that process is you lose up to 50% of the monoterpenoids. These are the lower molecular weight compounds that are more volatile. Um, you know, they give cannabis their smell. So I wanted to develop a process where we would just isolate the trichomes and we do it from the fresh plant so that we've lost none of the terpenoids. Um, so we um, used a process of exposing cannabis flowers, freshly cut uh, to vapor from dry ice, um, solid CO2 uh, for 48 hours. And um, what we found is we produced a material we call cryokeef. Cryo means cold. Keef is the name uh, used in Morocco for sifted uh, cannabis trichomes. Um, and what we found is uh, we, in one instance, uh, we were able to get a total cannabinoid concentration of about 60%. And we could also triple the terpenoid uh, content in the fresh flower. Um, so uh, there are two ways this could be used. One would be for your cannabis connoisseur, uh, the high-end um, hashish uh, aficionado, whatever. But more importantly, um, this would be the base for uh, pharmaceutical development um, because one of the things you have to show um, in developing a, a cannabis-based pharmaceutical is not just mm -hmm. efficacy, that it works and that it's safe. Um, you've got to have consistency. In judging consistency, it's better if you're dealing with uh, several compounds rather than hundreds. Um, so if we're really uh, concentrating the cannabinoids and terpenoids and we're eliminating the chlorophyll and all the other stuff that's in the biomass that you don't need, it's going to be a much cleaner preparation. Uh, and it becomes easier to standardize and get uh, through a regulatory process for whoever is approving the pharmaceutical. Um, so that that's the idea behind it. That's fascinating research. I, I was actually just curious when when you were talking, just thinking about, you know, I guess how 
far ahead um, in pushing the the research envelope you are and, and sort of looking then backwards from there at, at where I guess industry is currently. What, what's your takeaway on, I, I know you've um, I'm sure observed at a distance uh, <laughs> what we're doing here in Australia um, in terms of our industry, but where do you, I guess, what, what medicines, what am I trying to say? What are the, what do you think about when you look at, I guess, this, the suite of medicines that are available in a different, in each different jurisdiction in terms of cannabis medicine, do you think we're getting it right? Or do you feel that we're, we're way off the mark? I'm afraid it's the latter, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, let me yeah. pick on Canada for a second. Um, I, I love Canada. Um, uh, you know, if things have been a little different, I'd be living there. But in Canada, uh, ostensibly, cannabis is legal uh, for most purposes. There are some 260 licensed producers of cannabis. However, uh, their idea of research has mainly been um, we've got this preparation. Uh, let's say that's uh, some combination of THC and CBD, and we'll give it to a bunch of people for condition X and see how they did. Um, and that might help them in saying uh, our stuff worked for arthritis. Uh, however, it doesn't pass muster with Health Canada or uh, the US FDA, uh, any regulatory body, because it's not a randomized controlled trial. So they're sort of playing lip service to the science Um, and none of the preparations are necessarily optimized the way we've described. In other words, I want something that really focuses on the condition and there's a rationale for why it's composed the way it is. Um, You know, so if we're treating arthritis, I want something that's going to deal with pain that is actually going to reduce inflammation through multiple mechanisms. Um, so when I say optimize something that's going to be effective and safe and, you know, where I can provide a scientific rationale for why it is the way it is. Yeah, Um, this is, this is kind of what we, we had Bonnie Goldstein on the, um, on the show and she was talking about, you know, specific cannabinoids, figuring out specific, what specific cannabinoids are doing what in her patients. And then, uh, uh, over time, um, you know, putting those combinations together based on the rate, you know, starting from the point of research and applying those cannabinoids or terpenes to that patient and then making a kind of amalgam or concoction, let's say, at the end of of treatments that suits that patient based on the research and based on their response, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you could hardly have gone to a better source. Um, Yeah, which is amazing. Um, I just wanted to ask one thing. We I know we jumped away from it, but going back to the cryokeef, just real quick, I, ha- I was thinking, I mean, immediately what came to mind was live rosin and this new kind of, uh, a, you know, it's a hot, hot product at the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Everybody wants it. The terp uh, values are up in the, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% kind of thing. And, and the the freezing um, element sounds very familiar. Is, is, is that the same, similar or a little bit different? Uh, different. You know, usually live rosin is uh, it's a heat process uh, involved. Uh, so there's got to be, and you know, if there's ambient aroma attached to it, it means that you've lost some of the terpenoids. Um, so I'm not criticizing it. It's uh, what we're trying to do is 
get maximum preservation of the components as they appear in, in the plant when it's fresh. Now I should emphasize, and people realize this, when you make cryokeef, um, it's not gonna be a bunch of THC, it'll be THCA, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, um, because the, the material hasn't been heated, it's not gonna be decarboxylated. So, but it gives the advantage of being able to use the acid cannabinoids for their therapeutic properties. And if you want the neutral cannabinoids, THC, CBD, you uh, decarboxylate them through heat, uh, et cetera. Um, so it, it gives more latitude to the composition of the medicine. Okay. Got it. And interesting. And and where do you think the the future of, I mean, you've already kind of given an insight into the future of where <laughs> you've already given away too much in terms of the future of uh, cannabis research is going, but you know, where do you see this in, say, 10, 20, 30 years? I mean, people have talked about trying to isolate every single compound, doing the test on every single terpene, every single flavonoid, every single cannabinoid, and then basically reconstituting these products into specifically targeted. Is, is that something you'd you'd like to see? Or are you more like uh, there's a there's an element of, let's say, in an analogy form, scotch whiskey which we happen to love you've got that single malt kind of malt whole next. Plants, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay yeah. well they, they have each have their adherence um you know in a way it doesn't matter what i think because there are always going to be three echelons of activity there will be herbal cannabis products there will be supplements um that uh you know hopefully have some quality control um and um you know, would be available generally. And then there's going to be the pharmaceutical market. Mm -hmm. Now, the mistake that people make in, uh, in business is thinking that one echelon can eliminate the others. It isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and people should disabuse themselves of that notion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in answer to your question, what happens in years hence, the answer is not much unless we remove the roadblocks to research. We need a situation in which the politicians that make the rules are listening to physicians and scientists that might know a little bit more about this. It's a strange they, concept. Strange yeah, concept. Well, nowhere worse than in my country. Um, mm, unfortunately. We're really not headed in the right direction. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm 70 years old. Um, I remember a time... Um, uh, well, I'm really dating myself, but back in the 70s, there was a strong movement um, to decriminalize cannabis, and it got totally derailed uh, when the drug czar at that time was caught um, uh, sniffing cocaine at a, a party. Then the next thing that happened was Ronald Reagan was in office, and we took a huge step backwards from which we're still trying to recover. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, we have some hard-earned gains. People like to say uh, that the proverbial genie is out of the bottle and we can't go back. But yeah, things can always get worse. So I, I don't uh, mm -hmm. assume anything. Yeah, um, the, the, we've, there's work like the, to be done here in Australia as well. I mean, we, we've got. Uh, you know, a, a situation where really, I mean, if there's only one state, little old Tasmania, which we consider overseas, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, little old Tasmania is the only state that uh, you're allowed to to drive 
with with THC in your system if you have a prescription. So you know that there's there are you know seemingly roadblocks everywhere that we we need to overcome. Do you, do you think? I mean, you're you're 70 now, uh, as you just revealed. Do you think in your lifetime you will see um, a federal harmonization of of laws in the US um, that you know that make it not such a state by state system, or is that too much to ask? Uh, hopefully, but again, mm. I had always said that when uh, uh, 30 out of the 50 states had legalized that the feds would have to do something, but it, it still hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, it also very much depends on who the next president is and uh, considering the possibilities, things could get a lot worse. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I mean, over here we've got federal harmonization, but uh, CBD is a prescription narcotic, so go figure. <laughs> well, again, look at who's making the rules. Um, yeah, it's a real grab bag when you look internationally. In most countries, CBD isn't a control product, nor uh, nor is CBG. Um, you know, uh, some countries discriminate properly based on the science. Um, but even so, there was no uh, rational reason scientifically uh, that cannabis should have been prohibited to begin with. Um, yeah. you know, prohibition's an abject failure. Um, it's never worked anywhere for any substance. And what uh, if people want to control the situation, the only solution uh, is legalization with some standards for the industry. And that's what I advocate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, we could continue unpacking that for several hours, I feel. Um, if we uh, if it wasn't a morning here, I'm sure we could uh, bust out a whiskey and do just that. But um, anyway, no, thank you uh, so much, Ethan. It's It's been an absolute pleasure to, um, to, to chat with you and really gain you know all of your insights um especially you know, the trade of, secrets yeah the trade <laughs> secrets but just so many topics that you touched on you know it'll be, it'll be the first time that um you know some of them first time i had heard about but but also our audience so we we really appreciate you um continuing to um push the envelope at, at the frontier of, of all things cannabis research related so many many thank you thanks to you from australia thank you all right. Until next time, take care. Thanks, Ethan. Cheers. Thanks, Ethan.